This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Okay, so just by uh, way of a preface, um, what happens when I'm uh, asked to give a talk here is that quite a few months before, someone like Arika or Satyaprabha contacts me and says, this is what we're doing over this particular course of months. Uh, and this time we're going to be asking order members to talk about particular uh, suttas or sutras uh, that inspire them and to talk about them. And it just so happened that that day I'd been reading a bit about the so-called Buddha's unanswered questions. And I thought, that sounds good, and I'll connect it to death and the self. So I write a quick piece and send it off to Satyaprabha. And then a few months later I go, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) What have I said? (laughs) So um, that's by way of preface. Um, So hopefully it won't be a complete disaster. So, here we go. So, In the Pali Canon, which is the earliest collection of the Buddha's teachings, there's a set of ten questions which the Buddha left unanswered or undeclared. And what I want to do tonight is to explore why the Buddha left these ten questions unanswered. And in the process of exploring why he left them unanswered, I hope to highlight a fundamental reason or principle behind his decision to leave them unanswered. And that same reason or principle I hope to use to explain how the Buddha did answer the question of what happens to you and me, unenlightened beings, when we die. And I want to raise the possibility that maybe we do not fully appreciate the Buddha's explanation of what happens to us when we die. So, the ten undeclared questions. These occur at various points in the Pali Canon. And I'm going to look in particular at two individuals, one man called Malunkyaputta and another man called Vachagotta. And both of them, at different times, had dialogues with the Buddha about these ten questions. And first of all, I'm going to take a look at the dialogue that takes place between Vachagotta and the Buddha. And the Buddha is staying at the Jetta Grove in Anartapindika's monastery at Savati. Vachagotta visits the Buddha. Vachagotta is described as a holy wanderer, as someone who wanders in the forest, exploring spiritual questions. And he probably owes his allegiance to a different teacher than the Buddha. And the dialogue goes something like this. Vachagotta to the Buddha. Do you hold the view that the cosmos is eternal? The Buddha, no. Vachagotta, then do you hold the view that the cosmos is not eternal? The Buddha, no. Vachagotta, do you hold the view that the cosmos is finite? No then do you hold the view that the cosmos is infinite? No. Do you hold the view that the soul and the body are the same? No. Then do you hold the view that the soul is one thing and the body another? No. 
Do you hold the view that after death, a Tathagata exists? A Tathagata is another word for an enlightened being. So do you hold the view that after death, an enlightened being exists? The Buddha, no. Then do you hold the view that after death, a Tathagata does not exist? No. Then do you hold the view that after death, a Tathagata both exists and does not exist? No. So do you hold the view that after death, a Tathagata neither exists nor does not exist? No. So the Buddha answers no to all ten questions. And if you can get your head around the last two of those, uh, you're a better person than I am. But um, basically you get the idea. The Buddha refuses to be drawn into answering these questions. And really what these questions come down to is four issues. Is the cosmos eternal or not? Is the cosmos infinite or not? Are the soul and the body the same or separate things? And what happens to an enlightened being when they die? At the time that the Buddha was teaching, these particular questions were very much part of a hotbed of philosophical and spiritual debate. All spiritual teachers, philosophers, wandering holy men, all of these people were hotly debating these issues. And everyone held a view on the answers to these questions. And you might have noticed that there's an underlying theme behind these questions of eternalism, do things exist forever, or nihilism, do they come to an end, of immortality versus mortality. And the Buddha very clearly did not wish to enter this debate. He wouldn't be drawn into it. So the question is, why? And I think when you explore this, you find that there are four main reasons why he would not get drawn in. First of all, the Buddha realized that for an unenlightened person, entering this debate was going to give them a very big headache. The Buddha described these debates as a thicket of views. I don't know if you know what a thicket is. It's like a very uh, close, dense clump or bunch of trees, maybe with thorns and so on. It's a kind of lump of trees that you don't want to get into. So he described the debate as a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a writhing of views, a fetter of views, that's like a heavy chain, which are always accompanied by suffering, distress, despair and fever. In other words, if we as an unenlightened being get caught up in these debates about the ten questions, it isn't going to do your health any good at all. So that's the first answer. Second reason. It was widely believed at the time that if you were enlightened, then you were omniscient. That is, you knew every fact that it is possible to know about life, about the world, about the universe and everything. You knew every conceivable fact. You were all-powerful, you were omniscient. And I think it's very likely that the Buddha did not want to claim omniscience. Maybe he wasn't omniscient, that's my view, he wasn't. But why did he not want to claim omniscience? Why? Because it wasn't relevant to know every detailed fact about the world and the universe. It just wasn't relevant 
And we can get an idea of why it wasn't relevant from a very good saying by a 7th century Mahayana Buddhist called Dharmakirti. He was a teacher in the 7th century and he ridiculed the idea that the Buddha was omniscient. What he said was, what possible use could there be in the Buddha knowing, for example, the exact number of insects in the whole world? What possible use could there be in the Buddha knowing the exact number of insects in the whole world? Basically, what a waste it would be of the Buddha's wisdom and his potential. But, said Dharmakirti, what is undeniably useful is the Buddha's knowledge of how we should practice here and now if we wish to gain enlightenment. And this links to the third reason for the Buddha's refusal to answer the ten questions. And that is, what was the use of spending time puzzling over these ten questions when they were nothing more than a huge distraction from what we should be concentrating on, that is, seeking the end of suffering, seeking enlightenment? The point is very forcibly and beautifully put by the Buddha in his dialogue with another holy wanderer, a man called Malunkyaputta. Again, Malunkyaputta has been pressing the Buddha about these ten questions, saying, I really want you to tell me the answer. I'm not going to be able to progress in the holy life unless you give me an answer to these ten questions. And this is how the Buddha replies. Suppose, Malunkyaputta, a man were wounded by an arrow thickly smeared with poison, and his friends and companions brought a doctor to treat him. But suppose that the man would refuse to let the doctor pull out the arrow until he knows whether the man who shot the arrow was a noble or a Brahmin or a merchant or a worker. And suppose that the man would further refuse to let the doctor pull out the arrow until he knew the name and the clan of the man who shot the arrow, whether he was tall or short or of medium height, whether he was dark brown or golden skinned, in which village or town or city he lived, whether the bow that was used to shoot the arrow was a long bow or a crossbow, what kind of feathers were fitted to the shaft of the arrow, and so on and so on and so on. And the Buddha said, of course, the man would die before he had the answers he desired. The poisoned arrow would kill him before he had the answers he desired. And the Buddha went on, So too, Malankyaputta, if anyone should say that he would not practice the holy life until he got answers to the ten questions from the Buddha, he would die before he even began to properly practice. Malankyaputta, whether the cosmos is eternal or not, whether the cosmos is infinite or not, whether the body and soul are the same or different things, and whatever happens to an enlightened being when he dies, there is birth, there is aging, there is death, there is sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair, the destruction of which I prescribe here and now. Why have I left these ten questions undeclared and unanswered? Because they are not helpful. They do not belong to the fundamentals of the holy life. They do not lead 
to nirvana and enlightenment. And what have I declared? What have I answered? This is suffering, I have declared. This is the origin of suffering, I have declared. This is the cessation of suffering, I have declared. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering, this I have declared. So the Buddha is saying, what matters are the basic teachings, the Four Noble Truths, the Noble Eightfold Path. Anything else, like the ten unanswered questions, is a complete distraction. So that's the third reason why the Buddha refused to be drawn into answering those questions. But I think there is a fourth reason for the Buddha's refusal to answer these questions. And he refused because the very basis of the questions does not apply. The very basis of the questions is wrong. I said earlier that the questions are very much concerned with the opposites of eternalism and nihilism, of immortality versus mortality, of infinity versus finitude, of exist or not exist. And the Buddha taught a way of approaching our experience that was a middle way between eternalism and nihilism. He taught a basic doctrine known as Pratichyat Samatpada, dependent arising or conditionality, a teaching that all things exist in dependence on conditions. And if these conditions change, then these things change. This means that all things, including us, including ourselves, are empty of fixed self-nature. Nothing, including us, exists separately from everything else. Nothing stays the same or is permanent. Everything is in fact a changing process, which is itself a part of a vast web of changing processes, being conditioned by other processes and itself conditioning other processes, coming into and going out of being. So the teaching of dependent arising says that no fixed separate self for us and for anything else, no such thing as things, everything is a process, coming into and going out of being that is linked to other processes and which itself conditions other processes. And what we take as the self, the Buddha said, is in fact made up of an experience composed of five aggregates or flows that are called the skandhas. So there's five aggregates or skandhas or flows that make up what we think of as the self. And these are sense contact. Every moment we're having contact with some sense object, hearing, seeing, touching, smelling, tasting, and so on. Associated with that sense contact is always a feeling tone, a sensation of pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality. Associated with a sense contact is always a process, a flow known as perception, 
recognizing and labeling and naming something. And associated again is a process known as volitions. That is the active emotional response or attitude that we bring to our experience of sense contact, of this feeling tone of pleasantness or unpleasantness and of perception. And all of these are brought together in a moment of consciousness or awareness. So these are the five aggregates or skandhas that are flows. And if we really understand the Buddha's teaching on dependent arising, when we really understand this idea of the five skandhas or five flows, then we see things as they really are. And the Buddha said, as a consequence, if we were to see things as we really are, the very idea of forming the ten questions that everybody was so concerned with simply would not occur to us. The very idea of the ten questions doesn't come up. So if we return to the dialogue between the Buddha and Vachagotta, Vachagotta is very persistent. He's saying again, to, he's questioning the Buddha again, and he's particularly concerned with the question of what happens to an enlightened being when they die. So Vajagata says to the Buddha, after a death, after death, where does an enlightened being reappear? And the Buddha replies, reappear does not apply. So Vajagata says, in that case, an enlightened being does not reappear. And the Buddha says, does not reappear does not apply. And so on to the other options. At which point Vajagata turns to the Buddha and he says, I am totally befuddled, totally confused. He's completely mixed up. So to help him understand, the Buddha uses a metaphor. Uses a metaphor and an example, actually, from real life. What do you think, Vajagata? If a fire was burning in front of you, would you know that this fire is burning in front of me? Yes, says Vajagata. The Buddha says, and suppose someone was to ask you, Vajagata, this fire that is burning in front of you, on what is it dependent for its burning? How would you reply? And Vajagata said, I would reply that the fire burning in front of me is dependent on the fuel of grass and wood for its burning. So the Buddha goes on. Then if the fire burning in front of you were to go out, would you know that the fire burning in front of you had gone out? Vajagata says, yes. And the Buddha says, and suppose that someone was then going to come to you and ask you, this fire that has just gone out in front of you, in which direction from here has it gone? Has the fire gone to the east? Has it gone to the west? Has it gone to the north or has it gone to the south? If you were asked so, how would you reply? Vajagata says, the question does not apply. <laughs> A burning fire that is dependent on grass and wood for its fuel, when that fuel is finished, the fire is simply classified as out. And the Buddha says to Vajagata, in the same way, any question as to where a Tathagata or an enlightened being goes after death does not apply. The question itself does not make sense. 
So if we truly understood the Buddha's teaching of dependent arising, then the question whether the cosmos is eternal or not simply would not come up. Whether the cosmos is finite or infinite simply wouldn't come up. Whether the body and soul are the same or different things simply would not come up. And whether an enlightened being exists or doesn't exist after death simply wouldn't come up. (coughs) But if we were to ask the question, what happens to us as unenlightened beings when we die, then the Buddha did give an answer. And it's to this that I want to turn now. So when we look at how the Buddha describes his experience of enlightenment, what he says is this. First of all, that he saw all of his previous rebirths. And he saw where and how and why he was reborn as he was. And secondly, he saw the pattern of rebirths of other beings and the reasons for their rebirths. And thirdly, he was able to see and get rid of the very deepest of the tendencies that bind us to rebirth after rebirth. So there's three elements that he said comprise his enlightenment experience. The Buddha saw that something of a being's consciousness, the pattern of their karmic tendencies, their habitual karmic habits, continues on after death of the physical body and re-becomes in another being. Technically, I think this was called the linking consciousness, the consciousness that passes from one life to the next. And if you look at the wheel of life up there on on the, the wall, around the outside, we have these 12 nidanas, the 12 links. And the first three links are telling us that independence on ignorance arises karmic formations and independence on karmic formations arises consciousness. And what this is saying is because we are not enlightened, because we're ignorant, we are subject to our karmic actions and the consequences of our karmic actions. We're subject in particular to the strong habitual tendencies that we have. And these carry on and re-become as another consciousness. They re-become in another being. And this is not just a description of what happens at death. It's a description of what happens moment by moment in this very life whilst we are alive. We are continually making and remaking ourselves by our actions of body, speech and mind. By our karma, by our habitual tendencies, we are making and remaking the person that we are and the person that we can become. And an enlightened being, a Buddha, a Tathagata, is liberated from this perpetually occurring karmic cycle. A Buddha sees the way things really are, sees through the notion of a fixed separate self, and is able to break out of the cycle of samsara that traps us. And a Buddha gets rid of the very deepest of our habitual tendencies, of our karmic tendencies. He gets rid of, or she gets rid of, 
sensual desire, overcomes sensual desire, overcomes the desire for continued becoming, overcomes ignorance, and sometimes it said, and this is very interesting, let's go of holding on to fixed or dogmatic views. I think that's quite an interesting one. Let's go of holding on to fixed or dogmatic views. And this is how a Buddha becomes enlightened and how a Buddha is liberated from the samsaric round of rebirths. It's got nothing to do with the issues of omniscience or knowing what is mortal or immortal, knowing whether the cosmos is finite or infinite. Okay, so if we wish to understand exactly what happens at rebirth, the Buddhist tradition offers us a metaphor. And the metaphor is this. Milk changes to curds. How do you, you tell me, how would you translate curds in Swedish? Yogurt. Okay. So milk changes to curds or yogurt. Then it changes to butter in certain conditions. Then it changes to ghee. So this is an Indian metaphor. Milk can change into yogurt, can change into butter, and can change into ghee. Now when we look at this process of transformation, of change, from milk to yogurt to butter to ghee, we can see that each manifestation is quite different in some ways from its predecessor. And yet there is a causal thread that links them together. There is a causal continuity. Yogurt arises in dependence upon milk. Butter arises in dependence upon yogurt or curds or whatever it is. And ghee arises in dependence upon butter. And in the same way, then, I inherit the deeds of someone who is now long dead. I have inherited some of their karma. There's a continuity from that person to me. But that person, that someone whose karma I inherit, is not me. At the same time, they're not me. I in addition to the karmic tendencies I may have inherited, I'm defined by my genetic inheritance, my nationality, my culture, my language, my education, by a whole host of other conditions as well that are specific to my particular life. So Buddhism says that the next being who may inherit our karmic tendencies is neither the same as us, nor are they different from us. They're neither the same, nor are they different. In other words, just like milk and curds and butter and ghee, they're not the same, but neither are they different, because there's a causal thread of continuity. Now the problem is, I think, that we tend to hear the part about the next being not being different from us. They're not different from us. It's us. <laughs> but we miss the significance of the other thing, which is the next being is not the same as us. Not the same as us. It's not different from us, and it's not the same as us. So I suspect, and I know this is true for myself, if I'm honest, that however much we think we intellectually understand the Buddha's teaching on self and death and rebirth, at some deep level, we do not properly take it in. In a way, 
short of enlightenment, it's not surprising that we don't fully take it in. It's one of the last fetters to go, which is attachment to the idea of the self. If we probe deeply enough, we may well find a craving for me to continue. And to try and help us to see how deeply rooted is our attachment to this idea of a self that is reincarnated as me or you, I'm going to tell you two stories now. One of these stories is fictional and one is real. I think they, they throw some nice light on the, on the point I'm trying to make. So first of all, the fictional story. So this is a short story taken from a book called Into the Silent Land. And Into the Silent Land is written by a man called Paul Brox. He's a neuropsychologist and a writer. And the book is made up of a series of chapters, some of which are case studies of patients that he's worked with and explores the nature of consciousness. And some of the chapters are fictional stories. And this particular chapter is a science fictional story. So he asks you to imagine a future in which teleportation exists. And what happens if you want to travel from the Earth to to Mars, you step into a teleportation booth on Earth, and a few seconds later, you step out of a teleportation booth on Mars. Great, very simple. How does it work? It works like this. In the teleportation booth on Earth, there are a set of scanners. And these scanners in the booth copy the data on every atom and every detail of your body and mind. And they send this data to the teleportation booth on Mars. And there, the data, you don't have to believe this, just suspend your disbelief for a minute. There on Mars, the data is downloaded and every detail of your body and mind is recreated or reconstituted from raw materials that are available there and another you is made on Mars. And a short while later, you step out of the transportation booth on Mars and go about your business as usual. Great. But there is one other important detail and it's this. Once everything about you, once all the conceivable data on you has been copied in the Earth-based teleportation booth, the body existing on Earth is vaporized, is, is killed. And the reason it's killed, why destroy the body on Earth? Because there's been a lengthy consideration of the ethics of this process of teleportation by something called the Subcommittee on Personal Identity. And it was decided that there could never be two of the same person in existence at the same time. So if there was going to be two copies, one copy always had to be destroyed. Okay. So the subject of this short story, you might see what's coming here, is making his 13th teleportation trip from Earth to Mars. 13 is not a lucky number. Okay. So what happens is that there's a problem. (laughs) The copy steps out of the teleportation booth on Mars. He's fine. He's okay. But the original on Earth is not destroyed. The teleportation booth opens up and he's still there. He's perfectly all right. There's a malfunction. So now there's two copies of the same person in existence. And the copy on Earth is held prisoner. 
is unable to communicate with anyone, whereas the person on Mars is already out of the teleportation booth, phoning wife and kids saying, hi, honey, I'm fine, etc., going about his business, etc., whereas the person on Earth is trapped, held in jail, held as a prisoner, until the subcommittee on personal identity can meet in a couple of days' time to decide what to do with him. And there's a very real possibility that they will decide that he has to be killed. Okay? And the survivor knows this. So he's held in jail. And it turns out that his jailer, the person holding him prisoner, is former philosopher who was involved in the early days of the development of teleportation. And the jailer engages the prisoner in dialogue, trying to persuade him that it's not such a tragedy if the subcommittee on personal identity decides that he must be vaporised. Now the jailer is called Derek, and the prisoner in the story doesn't have a name, but we'll call him Ian for the purposes of this, of this uh, story. And Ian tells Derek, I don't want to die. And Derek says, what's the difference? If everything had gone according to plan, you would have died. You would have been vaporised. So all that's happened this time is that the vaporisation has been a little delayed. So Ian says, it's logical, I accept this, you've got a point. Um, but I don't want to die. And then it's pointed out to him that each of the previous 12 times that Ian had been teleported to Mars, he'd walked out of the booth at the other end with perfect memory, perfect recall of conscious and unconscious events coming up in dreams and so on. He telephoned his wife and family to tell them he was okay. There was a continuity, a perfect continuity. But at the same time, uh, uh, it was Ian's copy that was doing all those things, not Ian. And Ian thought, what did the experience of continuity amount to then? Was it no more than an illusion disguising what were in fact 12 deaths? That there had been 12 deaths taking place at each time he'd been teleported, someone had been killed. Then someone had continued. And he could see this in discussion with Derek. At the end of the discussion, he says, fine, but I don't want to die. And Derek then engages Ian in a lengthy discussion about the Buddha's views on the self and death and rebirth. And uh, Ian says, I can understand the logic of it. It makes perfect sense to me, but I don't want to die. And then the Derek talks about modern theory about the person known as something called bundle theory, very similar to the Buddha's ideas on the five skandhas. And again, he says, logical, rational, I accept it, but I don't want to die. And whatever argument Derek puts to Ian, even if Ian can see it logically and rationally, eventually he says, I don't want to die. And the end of the story is this. It finishes with Ian stepping into the room to meet the um, subcommittee on personal identity. We don't find out what happens to him. It leaves us open-ended. Okay? But you get the point. It doesn't matter how rational or logical the argument is and how much rationally or logically you can accept the argument. At a gut level, Ian keeps saying, I don't want to die. So that's the fictional story. So now we have a real story. <coughs> now some of you may have heard 
may have heard of a man called Paul Williams. He's the author of a book called Mahayana Buddhism. It's the most authoritative book probably in existence on Mahayana Buddhism. He's the top expert, if you like, in the world on Mahayana Buddhism. And all his adult life he's been studying Buddhism. And for a long time, for 20 years, he was a practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism, of Galugpa Buddhism. He knows as much about Mahayana Buddhism and about the basic doctrines of Buddhism probably as anyone alive today, I think. Very, very knowledgeable and experienced man. And yet, after 20 years' practice as a Buddhist and a lifetime immersed in the study of Buddhism, he astonished his family, friends and academic colleagues by converting suddenly from Buddhism to Roman Catholicism. He left Buddhism to become a Christian. So why did he convert to Catholicism? Why did he become a Christian? He wrote a book called The Unexpected Way, which tries to explain the story behind his conversion from Buddhism to Catholicism. And what comes out is, that, of course, there are many different reasons, quite a complicated story. There are many different reasons as to why he converted. But there was one reason that was very important to him, and it concerns the Buddhist view on the self and death and rebirth. Now, this man clearly, intellectually understands the Buddha's teachings on the self, death and rebirth. And in the book, he actually provides a little appendix. He does a, a, an exceptional job so on summarizing the Buddha's teachings on the self, death and rebirth. And I'm going to read you a bit from it. It goes over some of the same ground that I've already covered, but I think in a much better way than I could possibly explain it. So this is how he explains rebirth. The Buddhist position on rebirth is always stated to be that the rebirth is neither the same as nor different from the one who died. The Buddhist sees our present life as a causal continuum. We are constantly changing. With each moment of our life arising in causal dependence upon a preceding moment that has since ceased and acting to cause the next moment in the continuum. It is a bit like the flow of a river. This flow that we are is made of five strands. Physical matter, sensations, perceptions, volition and consciousness. This is the five skandhas that I was talking about earlier. They are each a flow, each constantly changing. And upon this five-fold flow, we superimpose for everyday practical purposes a singular identity, called by a name like Ian or Viryabodhi or Vadaka. Thus we are, in fact, a bundle, or a bundle of bundles. But because of beginningless ignorance, we have a tendency to overrate the practical everyday unity of giving ourselves a name, and to think, therefore, that there is some sort of unchanging essence that is constantly <coughs> present in the background. This presupposed unchanging essence we think of as our self, what the Buddha called Atman. This self is a fiction. 
we attach to this fiction with cravings associated with I and mine. These cravings, based on delusion, power our egoity, our egoism, our endless series of rebirths, and ultimately all our misery and suffering. In letting go of this fiction of this self, we let go of the forces that power rebirth. In finally bringing about this letting go at the deepest possible level of our being, all rebirth ceases, and thus ceases all misery, all suffering. That is nirvana, that is enlightenment. So just as we are actually a fivefold flow in this life, the Buddhist wants to say, at death, all that happens is that there is a particular sort of break caused in the physical flow. But the mental flow, powered by forces resulting from egoism, continues and is reconfigured into another everyday identity. Thus, in everyday language, we speak of the death of Archibald and his rebirth as Fiona. But really, Archibald is no longer there. He is dead. The flow that was explained for practical purposes as Archibald has been reconfigured into Fiona. But if, of course, Fiona as such is a further stage in the flow. Archibald ceases, the flow continues, Fiona begins, the flow continues. This flow is literally beginningless. There is no first beginning. It can only end if we gain nirvana. So, it's a very good summary, I think, that of the Buddhist doctrine on self, death and rebirth. So it's clear that although there is a continuity from one birth to the next, to all intents and purposes, at death, one person dies and a different person is born. So he says, according to the Buddhist position, when I die, I cease. At death, the person I am shall cease. So death is the end for me, for you, for us, as we normally understand ourselves. And he goes on to say that as Buddhists, we can fudge this fact. We can muddy the waters, if you like, around this fact by talking about my rebirth, my past lives, my reincarnation. And he says, this avoids the reality of the situation. So when he, Paul Williams, personally really looked into death and the possibilities of what would happen at death, when he looked, if you like, into the abyss that death was, when he faced death, he decided that he preferred the Christian idea of heaven. He decided, in favour of the Christian idea of heaven, because when it came down to it, for all the theory and doctrine that he'd been studying all his life, for all the teachings that he'd been talking about as a Galugpa Buddhist, he wanted himself, Paul Williams, to survive. That's the decision he came to. Now, I think it's easy for us to rush in to criticise his decision, um, to say it's naive, that he couldn't have possibly really understood or taken on Buddhist ideas, but I think... Uh, what happened to Paul Williams should give us pause to reflect on asking ourselves just how well 
Do we understand the Buddhist doctrine on the self, death and rebirth? Not just how well do we understand it intellectually, but to reflect on how emotionally engaged we really are with this teaching. Because this side of enlightenment, there's going to be a part of us that is emotionally attached to wanting me to continue. And sometimes in a superficial way, we can override the knowledge that this exists within us. So the story of Paul Williams, I think, is telling us, look, don't presume that you really know with all of your being and accept with all of your being the Buddhist teachings on rebirth. Be aware that there's always going to be work that needs to be done. There's always things to be explored in that area. So what I've tried to do tonight is to show you how the same reasoning that lay behind the Buddhist decision to leave the ten questions undeclared or unanswered also lies behind his explanation of what he gave to the question of what happens when we as unenlightened beings die. The same middle way between eternalism and nihilism of dependent arising that explains why he refused to answer the ten question also explains what happens to us when we as unenlightened beings die. But if we accept this account of Buddhist doctrine, what attitude should we bring to the situation we find ourselves in, to this life that we're living now, and to our inevitable death and to future lives? And there's a very interesting um, angle on this uh, that appears in a piece of writing by a man called Andrew Olensky. Andrew Olensky is the editor of a journal called Insight Journal produced by the Insight Meditation Society in the United States. And he's also an expert on the, the Pali Canon. And this is what he says. When you look into and you contemplate the Buddha's teachings on the self and death and rebirth, he said, we should realize that we have been given a great gift. We've been given the great gift of life and consciousness and awareness and we have been given this gift from those who went before us. What we have been given is very precious indeed, moment after moment of awareness. So we should feel a deep sense of gratitude for those who went before us, whose karma we have inherited. And I think we should also feel a deep sense of gratitude for all the other conditions that have helped to make us the people that we are now, for our parents, for our education, for our upbringing, for our culture, all of the things that have helped to make us what we are now, we should feel gratitude for them as well. But in particular, we can feel gratitude for those who went before us, whose karma we have inherited. And we should feel a great sense of responsibility and altruistic concern for those who might come after us, those who might inherit our karma. What matters is what we do now in each moment of awareness. In each moment of awareness, we fashion our karmic inheritance for ourselves in this life 
and for those who will come later after we die. And as Andrew Olensky says, how can we help but be bodhisattvas? We are living for the benefit of all beings, whether we like it or not. The question is only, with what quality will we live this moment in this life right now? We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 